You know, unintentionally, we keep doing a Something to Prove album. Not that any album has nothing to prove, but look at what we've done recently. R.E.M. has their first big hit with Green, We Do Out of Time. Doggy Style, not technically a sophomore album, but a highly anticipated solo debut after Snoop already had a massive MTV hit. The Benz, Crazy Sexy Cool, and so on. Which brings us inevitably to Odelay, actually Beck's fifth album, but the first following Loser. Beck Hansen is one of those artists who both is and is not a one-hit wonder. After years of trying to make it in New York's anti-folk scene in the late 80s, Beck went home to L.A. in 1991. He was a real-deal, poor-ass folk musician doing open mics and going nowhere. His stream of consciousness freestyling grew out of trying to do anything to get the audience's attention. So Loser is released in 1993 and gradually becomes a ubiquitous hit, and Beck releases Mellow Gold, and then he needs to make a follow-up record. He enlists the Dust Brothers to produce, and they make Odelay, released in 1996. It's both a glorious mess of genres and samples, and remarkably consistent. The lead single, Where It's At, gave us a second Beck spawned catchphrase, two turntables and a microphone. Today on Hidden Jukebox, Beck's Odelay. I'm Matthew Amster Burton. And I'm Jake Amster. All right, let's do this. I got two things to say. Yes. First off... One hit wonder, man. This guy is still going. He has so okay. Let me explain. I knew this was going to be a controversial thing to say. Like there are a number of artists that are so closely associated with one song, even though they've had many legitimate hits. And granted, he is associated with loser, but the second that those chords of where it's at come on. Everybody knows what song that is. So if if he had everybody knows where it's at. If if he had no other hits after that, that is at least a two hit person. That, just like Simply Red, the first band that comes to mind. <laughs> like wait, okay. So Simply Red had uh, pull um, back the ears and uh, and don't tell me it was a cover, right? If you don't know me by yeah, now, yeah, huge. Okay. Huge two-hit wonder. I think we talked about Simply Red on another episode, and I couldn't remember their song then either, so that's cool. I'm glad I remembered it today because I thought you were going to put me on the spot. I was going to go, I have no clue. Yeah. Uh, all right. So um, what's your history with this record? Well, I saw Beck on this tour okay. uh, in 1997 at Bumbershoot. Um, oh, I saw Beck at Bumbershoot, but it was years later. It, I think. This, yeah, it this, was. This show was so packed that Bumbershoot started using wristbands the year afterwards simply due to the fact that they just allowed anyone and everyone into the stadium for whatever Simply due to the fact that Simply Red showed up. Yep. They showed up and everybody just mobbed the place. Uh, So it it was like people crowd surfing in line to get inside to the venue. It was incredible. I have a crowd surfing story, by the way. Uh, I have many crowd surfing stories, thank God. I mean, I have a recent one. It was not actually a crowd surfing story, but I have to tell this story. Okay, give me a minute. Yeah. He comes on stage, and I can't remember who he was following because I was running over from seeing Cake to make sure that I didn't miss any of Beck because I love this album so much. And he came Maybe up- this is the year I, I went and saw Beck at Bumbershoot also. Could be. Cake were great, too, and I actually just saw them again a couple of years ago. They're a band that's also still around, despite being the 20 years old. You know, point. Cake might be another one of those bands that's had, to, had a bunch of hits, but the one that everyone's going to do at karaoke is The Distance. Of course. Right? Okay. Yeah. So Beck comes up on stage, and he is dressed in a full white suit, two-piece suit, and yep. he is doing this James Brown thing. Yeah, and this is what I saw also, but I don't know. Maybe he always does that? I don't he know. He doesn't, okay. because I've seen Beck multiple times, and he just completely blew me away. He had so much swagger and confidence on stage, and the thing is, you listen to this album, and you listen to M- M- Mellow Gold, and he has kind of this identity crisis where you don't know if he's going to come out and be kind of a singer-songwriter, right. but you don't expect him to come out and be full-throttle, like, trying to do the splits on stage and just all over the map the entire time. Okay, yeah. So this, okay, this is actually a perfect segue into into my story, which I will keep short. Uh, we went to see Peter Bjorn and John play the other night. It's not pronounced Bjorn? Peter Bjorn and Bjorn. Okay, perfect. Um, speaking of one-hit wonders. So uh, we, we went along with uh, uh, our teenager Iris. Uh, and uh, we're up in the balcony because that's the all-ages section. Exactly. So uh, Peter, Bjorn, and John are a fantastic live band. 
Uh, if you ever seen them, they are like, you know, like you described back, like way, way higher energy than you expect or deserve from like a bunch of uh, like Swedish sappy pop guys. Okay. Um, and uh, Peter, the lead singer in particular, is, is just, you know, he's like jumping around and, and doing like all sorts of guitar acrobatics and stuff. And so they do the, uh, they do the uh, encore. And of course, they play young folks. And during that song, or possibly a song just before or after that, he, he goes out into the audience. He's put down his guitar and he he's goes out into the audience and he's singing and high fiving people. And then he looks up into the balcony and you can see him forming this idea. And he's like, okay, you guys give me a boost. And uh, people boost him up. And he grabs onto the railing and pulls himself up into the balcony and Holy is singing shit. in the balcony, um, which was which was cool, right? And I look down, and there is this security guard, like a big guy who is looking up, and I've never seen a more pained expression on someone's face because I could see what this guy was thinking, like this dumb fuck is going to jump down from there and die and it's going to be my fault and like I thought this was going to be a regular night at work but this is the night where everything in my life suddenly went wrong and I had to watch some guy die and lose my job <laughs> luckily he Peter went down the stairs so it was oh. fine but I am never going to forget the look on this poor guy's face I thought you were going to say he Eddie vettered <laughs> it straight off that balcony nope but I, I, I had the same thought. It could have happened. I also have always hoped that Peter, Bjorn, and John weren't actually named Peter, Bjorn, and John. They're like three Jewish brothers named like Jaime, Herschel, and Ruben or something like that. That would be amazing. Yeah. Thank you. We are Peter, Bjorn, Hoagie. and John. One of them is named Hoagie. <laughs> everybody calls him Hoagie. He's right. Herschel, but everybody calls him Hoagie. <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay, so okay. So back to back. B- back to back. Uh, this album... It certainly wasn't what brought him into fame, but it was actually his best-selling album of yeah. all time. Selling two million albums, it won him awards, uh, it's on many people's top 100 lists, top 500 lists. Yeah, for sure. It it spawned three big hits, yep. and and I think we should start out by playing one of them. Uh, let's, let's start with Devil's Haircut, since it's the opening track. Let's do it. Everywhere I look, there's a dead end waiting Temperatures dropping at the rotten oasis Stealing kisses from the leprous faces Heads are hanging from the garbage man trees Mouthwash, jukebox, gasoline Pistols are pointing at a poor man's pockets Smiling eyes ripping out of his sockets Got a devil's haircut in my mind Got a devil's haircut in my mind Got a devil's haircut in my mind Okay, first off, you know what I'm going to say. I love how he makes me wait for that chorus. Oh, he does. Yeah. Uh, you love the... Pause for the chorus. You want two verses before you hit the chorus. I do. Now, uh, the go. other thing, this, I love it when someone can come up with a riff like this that, I mean, that is four notes and two of them are the same and it hits so hard. Well, and it kind of shows a couple things here. First off, this album uh, is the first Beck album produced by the Dust Brothers, uh-huh. who are famous for producing 80s hip hop artists. Yeah. Uh, Beastie Boys, Tone Loke, I think Run DMC. I think so. Um, and this is really a hip hop song. There's no real changes. There is a kind of musical bridge, but m- mostly it's sticking to this one pattern over and over again. Mm-hmm. And he has a way of, in the same way that hip hop does it, changing what he's doing vocally in the choruses to make you know that this is the chorus. Yep. Um, I also like that, uh, uh, you know, Beck's lyrics are are the kind of lyrics that, uh, you know, like like a lot of modern art, like it's very tempting to look at him and say, like, you know, he's just like making up bullshit. Um, anyone could do this and it would sound about the same. This is definitely not true. No, 
No, no, no, not. So, I love love machines on the sympathy crutches. Discount orgies on the dropout buses. <laughs> discount orgies is one of the most upsetting phrases. I, I know because you had to pay for it. It wasn't oh, right, going right, to right. come for free. Uh huh. And it was on a bus. Yes. <laughs> so I want to point out that on this track alone. Uh, Beck does the vocals, obviously. He does electric guitar. He does acoustic guitar. Uh, he does bass guitar. Too. He does organ. He does harmonica. And then the drums, the only reason he doesn't do them, aside from the fact that I'm not sure he plays drums, are it's all done turntable style. Right. So for anyone who thinks that he's just kind of a front man who hires a band... This guy is a musician's musician. Yeah, I I envy that so much. He's he is a songwriter, but he he does his work. He knows how to play the instruments. When he does albums, he does enlist plenty of other people to play on the album. The Dust Brothers actually brought in Money Mark to play on this mm-hmm. album, uh, who was the Beastie Boys keyboard player yeah. on a lot of their live stuff. Uh, so he's really a one man show in terms of what he does on his albums. And so he has these concepts that are so big that when you see him live, his band is usually very large horns, keys, like he's not bringing around a three piece band to back him up. He is bringing around a, a army of people. Does he ever still do like solo acoustic sets? So that was the other thing I was going to talk about. Mm-hmm. I said that I've seen him more than once. Yeah. I saw him again in 2005, and it was... So it was like the Guero era? It was the Guero the era. The Guero, we call it. Uh, so Guero had just come out, so he's doing tracks from that, but his previous album had been Sea Change, and mm-hmm. so he was going back and forth with his identity sure. crisis on stage, and he did this acoustic segment, so he's doing his right. manic all over the, the stage thing. The fun Funny thing about this was it was Halloween and the entire band is dressed as Boy Scouts and in between each song they keep doing things like pretending to go on a bear hunt and, <laughs> and make a campfire. It was it was brilliant because it was so live and off the cuff. But during his acoustic segment, when he played things like The Golden Age, one mm-hmm. of my favorite Beck songs. Oh, yeah. Uh, he plays a couple songs, and the band slowly trickles back out on stage, and you think that they're going to back him up, but instead they sit down at a dinner table, and each of them starts eating a meal, and in the middle of one of the songs, they start playing on the glasses and tables with their silverware percussion, oh, and man. they're playing this fully orchestrated percussion on dinnerware behind Beck. And oh, that it is was amazing. so cool. How much work would that be? Probably a ton, yeah. and it certainly wasn't improvised. Like you knew yeah. that they had planned it in advance. And people who saw him later on tour told me, "You'll never believe what he did on stage." And I said, "Does it have something to do with playing things with silverware?" <laughs> and they're like, "How did you know that?" <laughs> I am, I am there. I am a Beck silverware wholesaler. That's how. Uh, getting back to. Uh, this era, do you have any memories of when you first heard this album? Yes. Um, so this album came to me along with a number of others from my next door neighbors uh, when we moved to Seattle in 96, uh, who were known as Herbert Burgle and Sammy Martin, not their real names, but like they they adopted these nicknames so hard that everyone kind of forgot what their real names were for a while. Do you remember their real names? I do remember their real okay. names, um, but it doesn't matter. Um, and they they uh, were in a band that later I joined called Cat Piss Lint Trap. Uh, but they introduced me to this and to Archers of Loaf and to Built to Spill, am- among others. Okay. Um, so, uh, yeah, so they were like, you know, I, I was familiar with Loser, obviously, but they, they were the ones who like brought this over, like, you got to hear the new Beck. You mentioned that this is his fifth album, but a lot of people think of this as his second album. Yes. Um, he released what's almost an EP, an album that he won't let anybody right. hear, called like, Golden Feelings as his debut, and he, he self-released it. All, when you say that, like, I know it's golden something, I know it's not golden showers. Uh. <laughs> uh, he did Stereopathetic Soul Manure, which was a very odd album. I don't remember much about it. It it's just weird. Okay. I mean, his music is postmodern, like weird for the sake of being weird. But this was especially hard to listen to. Yeah, weird. but I mean, it's it's generally weird within some very conventional constraints, which is what makes it work, I think. Well, beyond that, he started into this pattern of let's release 
almost a dance party album, then let's release a serious album, right. then a party album, then a serious album. Because so, this one was followed by Mutations, right? Yes. Okay. And prior to this, he released One Foot in the Grave, which was tracks he had recorded before Mellow Gold, but mostly acoustic stuff. Right. After Mutations, he did Midnight Vultures, yes. which is arguably one of the best dance albums of all time, mm-hmm. in my opinion. Uh, then he followed that with Sea Change. Then he did Guero. Wow. I Yeah, this is pretty... Well, then, okay, but the information is a little more... Then, then he kind of flipped it, because then he did the information followed by Modern Guilt. Yes, and Modern Guilt is a little bit more stripped down. Yep. But he's got these two personas, and you even hear them a little bit on this album. Oh, yeah, definitely. Uh, one of the first tracks that I picked to play was Jackass, and let's play a little bit of that right now. to picture somebody uh, crowd surfing to that one. Yeah, sure. Real quick, while I'm talking about this, can you try and pull up It's All Over Now, Baby Blue by them? Uh, Sure. Uh, This song always spoke to me, even though I have no idea what the lyrics mean. And I always loved the pattern to the music, the keys, everything like that. And I always was like, this is Beck writing some really amazing stuff. And in doing research for this, uh, I noticed that it says that this samples It's All Over Now, Baby Blue by them. Okay. Go ahead and play the track. (laughs) I had no idea. I had no idea. You must leave now. Take what you need. That just so happens to be Van Morrison, yeah. and this is his first band. That's amazing. So I'm not sure that prior to working with the Dust Brothers, Beck was sampling all that much. I mean, he would use odd sounds, obviously, in his music, but this album really takes yeah. samples from other stuff, as we just saw, and uses them on his own. He must have had to find some way oh, to, yeah. to pay the royalties for that. Well, I mean, this this was, I mean, it's DGC, right? It um, was. So there was there was plenty of money behind this album. So At that point, yes. Yes. D- didn't that label eventually collapse? Yeah, but years later. A okay. few years later. <laughs> I don't remember. It's what, but hearing that version, then hearing what he does with the vocals is kind of what makes Beck a genius, is him hearing something completely different over this sample from a song that already existed. Um, yeah, so in the in the vocals of that song, I know it's it's sort of like a, a laid back sort of Lou Reedy kind of thing, but like there's just a little bit of Cobain in there. Yeah, right. And, and you know, a lot of people for many years were kind of banking on the success of Nirvana, Pearl Jam, Soundgarden, yeah. those bands. And yeah, I, I'm not I'm not saying that's what Beck was doing. I, I mean, I think it's it's a like a sensitive homage kind of. Well, one of the things that I was thinking about in doing this episode was who do you compare Beck to where did he come from and yeah who did he influence like so there's a whole lot of weird 60s music that I think you probably know more about than I do like because I I feel like just in terms of like being like a wacky guy who does his own thing but within a pop framework you know there's like a little bit of beef heart to this and a little bit of zappa to this yeah there is even the monkeys which most people think of as a mainstream band did some really really strange stuff in the 60s yeah uh, I can't remember the name of the movie that they put out, but it's one of the strangest movies I have ever seen. <laughs> I don't seen. know anything about this. I want to see it. I, 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 one of the strangest things I've ever seen in my life. Uh, 
he is a contemporary of Ween. Yes, and for Ween, sure. Ween does the same sort of thing where they're writing really poppy, yep. catchy melodies and then sticking the weirdest vocals you've ever heard in your life over the top of it and doing very, very strange things in the studio and figuring out how to make them straight ahead when he, when they do it live. Yeah. Um, there's also not many bands around who have who've been around as long as him and continue to produce amazing albums. Yeah, I would say um, Dear Life is one of my favorite Beck songs from 2017. Did, was that off of Colors? Yes. That that is a great great song. That was yeah. the, that was the opening single off of that yes. album, if mm-hmm. I'm remembering right. Yeah, really really cool changes. Yeah, I to like that, that whole album a lot. Yeah, um, I really like Beer Can off of the first album. Uh-huh. Uh, like I said, yep. I really like the Golden Age, and then I think Deborah off of Midnight Vultures. Oh, very very good. The last track off of Midnight Vultures, which doesn't sound anything like the rest of the album, is one of the greatest songs ever written. Um, I really like uh, Think I'm in Love. Uh, I really like E-Pro. Okay. There's there's a lot of good songs in the back oeuvre. And I say this like, you know, I to be to be upfront, like I am not a huge Beck fan. <laughs> like, I don't think I have ever purchased a Beck album, but he's just kind of always out there in the zeitgeist. Well, the the funny thing about loving Deborah is it's one of the f- <laughs> Deborah. <laughs> loving Deborah herself. Oh, Deborah, if I could only still be with you. Uh it's interesting because it's one of the only Beck songs where the lyrics can actually be interpreted as meaning what they say. I met you at JCPenney. I think your name tag said Jenny. Yeah. For some reason, not Deborah. Uh-huh. I cold stepped to you with a fresh pack of gum. Somehow I knew that you were looking for <laughs> <Yeah>. some. <laughs> it, it could have happened exactly that way. Exactly. It's funny, but at least it makes sense. Um, okay, but we we have to, we're talking about only about songs that are not on this record. This I know. is the Odelay episode. I, I Let's know. listen to where it's at. Okay. In the towns we know A place we saw the lights turn low The jigsaw jazz in the get fresh flow Pulling out jobs and jamboree handouts Two turntables and a microphone Bottles and cans that just clap your hands Or just clap your hands Where's that? So one thing that that uh, I noticed about this that, that hit me about this song when I was listening to it is that there are at least three big hit songs about cool places in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> so there's this, there's Love Shack, and there's Roadhouse Blues. What about House of the Rising Sun? There we go. There okay. is a house in New Orleans. Yeah. Of course, that that's been the ruin of many a poor boy, right? Like it's yeah, you don't go there for fun. I also like, thought of the Hotel California. I mean, yeah, you, you can check out anytime you like, but you can never uh, leave. I might put, I might accept Hotel California in this genre that I just invented. <laughs> there, there's got to be more too. Yeah, I mean, because because Hotel California is explicitly like you know off the map, and like you are going to have a good time before you realize that like. For all we know, like, has anyone ever emerged alive from the Love Shack or where it's at or the Roadhouse? We don't know. The Love Shack. You can check out anytime you like, but you can never leave. Right. <laughs> the back of the Roadhouse, they've got some bungalows, but, like, we don't, we've never seen anyone emerge from the bungalows. They're there for the people that like to go down slow. Someone someone is, is lying dead in a bathtub in one of those bungalows. <laughs> Boy, we're getting really off yes, track okay. again. Okay, so I did not know anything about where like the the sample that's running through this song came from until I started researching for this episode. It is from a progressive sex ed album from 1969 by a cool medical doctor, uh, and the title of the album is Sex for Teens, Where It's At. Is this the type of thing that they would have played in health class back then? I th- I think so, but it's so like, you know, hey, daddy-o, like, you know, so you want to get down? Like, here's how to do it safely. Um, it, it You can listen to the whole thing on YouTube. It is worth the listen. That is absolutely amazing. <laughs> Maybe not the whole 45 minutes of it, but 
you can you can see why like Beck would listen to this and be like, okay, I have to build a song around this. This is wild. So this song kind of reminded me of one thing and then another thing. Uh, <laughs> first off, it's one of the only tracks that isn't a folk song that does seem to have changes where it's not like a hip hop yes. song. Still feels like it could have been written for the Beastie Boys, yeah. but it's written by him. Um, it's it's got that hip hop beat behind it, but it's got changes to it. There's a destination a little up the road. <laughs> Pass it off to MCA. <laughs> uh, the other thing is, you listen to this album now, and it almost sounds like it could have been produced by Danger Mouse. Yeah, you, you think, that's true. You think about Gnarls Barkley, and you think about Broken Bells, and he does that kind of 50s doo-wop drumming behind yeah, everything. Yeah, definitely. And there's a lot of that going on on this album. And I don't know if that's more the influence of the Dust Brothers or where Beck wanted to go with it, but I think that Danger Mouse takes a lot of his influence from the Dust Brothers and maybe even from Beck. Yeah, I think you're right. Uh, so there's a contemporary who is heavily influenced by him yeah absolutely all right where to uh well since we're going with contrasting everything uh we should listen to lord only knows okay i forget that it starts that way every time I've not been listening to this on headphones. I've been listening to it nonstop the past few days, but just uh, on the stereo in the living room, which is not very stereo. And I, I only now just realized like how much that synth pad in the left ear is earning its keep. That oh, is yeah. so good. I'd like to start by crediting Mike Milius for that scream at the very beginning of the song. Who is that and what is it? It's probably the only time his name has ever been mentioned anywhere else besides Wikipedia. Okay. But- uh, apparently, it's not Beck who's doing that scream. It's, it's a guy in the studio that Beck was torturing. It, it is the only thing that he's credited for on this entire album. That's amazing. <laughs> it's like, I've got the perfect guy to bring in to do this scream at the beginning of this track that's absolutely necessary to this song that sounds like the Rolling Stones' Dead Flowers. But it's, uh, so So this was actually a scream recorded in the studio, not like a sample that he, I, I would have guessed it's like, you know, a Wilhelm scream the, type it, of thing. Totally, and I would too, but he is credited as one of the personnel on the album, whereas samples are credited completely separately. Um, okay, can we get into this chord progression thing, because I'm going insane. <sighs> you win. Okay. All right. No, no. This is not. This, uh, this is not like a thing where I want to win. Like I, I need help from the listeners on this. Okay. So here's here's the deal. Um, I don't want to go super deep into music theory, but we have to a little bit because so one of the most common chord progressions in Western music is one six four five. Um, or like the the part I want to focus on is the one six. So that means like the root chord in a major key followed by the sixth chord of the major key, which is a minor chord, all right? So some songs that have this, this, this uh, that start out this way, Stand By Me, Every Breath You Take, In the Aeroplane Over the Sea, uh, the chorus of Boys to Men, I'll Make Love to You, many, many, many other songs. This song almost does that, but it goes from the one chord to the major six, the major six chord, not the minor six chord. So... 
I got I got my acoustic right here. So it's it, here's what you would expect to hear. I wish I could say this is the nerdiest thing that's going to happen on this show, but I'd be lying. So you would expect the song's in B. So you expect here to go from B to G sharp minor. But it doesn't. It goes And so I was like, okay, that is a really cool, slightly, just unexpected enough chord progression. I bet I can find other songs that start that way. I was unable to turn up even one. I know they're out there. Listeners, hook us up. So uh, you are absolutely right about the chord changes. I was hearing it as a one Four, three. Every, everyone can fast forward this. Part. Yes, exactly. It's the most boring thing that we'll do on the show. <laughs> yeah, it's but, not a one, four, three. But uh, it is a one, six, four pattern, and that major six is correct. I don't know if I've mentioned this yet, but I went to music school. Yeah. <laughs> uh, one of the restrictions that happens when you learn music as a pedagogy, like in in a pedagogical sense, yeah. is you get restrained to what is ta- taught to you. Oh, right, right. I'm not, I don't think Beck sat down and was like, well, you know, uh, instead of the minor six here, I'm going to like trick people up with the uh, with the major six instead. I think it was like, oh, that sounds cool. No, the beauty of being a great songwriter is often not being trained. So not having those cr- constraints, just going, I'm playing around with chords. This sounds cool. It sounds like stuff that I like. I'm going to throw this in there. Yeah. Uh, you had mentioned that there is this, flat six that he throws in during the chorus that's true that is really really cool and unexpected he uses it instead of the two chord yep 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 yep. and it works really really well i just like this song because it harkens back to kind of that rolling stones late 60s early 70s feel very much when they were starting to go oh we're not just a pop band we're also a blues and a country band yep and it's such a cool throwback feel that he does on this. Yeah, Dead Flowers is a good song. I hadn't listened to that in a, oh quite a while. I used to cover that song, and I absolutely oh, awesome. love it. The only other thing that I want to say about this track mm-hmm. is the refrain is where the name of the album comes from. Yeah. He's saying maybe Odele at the end. He may be saying Orale, which means listen up in Spanish. Okay. Or Stephen Malcolmus, of all people, said what he's actually saying is Odele, as in this album was delayed for two years when he could have put it out a lot quicker. I don't think so. I mean, I think that's a story that Stephen Malcolmus would tell. Yeah, it does sound like the, the, the type of thing that I'm you'd say to, that's I'm going to see him tomorrow. Oh, Nice. Could you ask him about this I when you see him? I will ask him about that when I see him, yeah, for sure. Yeah, you guys are old friends, right? <laughs> right, right. I, I don't mean I'm going to his show. Like, I'm not going to pay to go to his show. We're just going to hang out. Okay, I want to talk about one thing that Beck did that, once again, is not part of this album, but just shows what a quirky genius he is. Okay. A few years back, which not a lot of people remember, uh, Beck put out something called The Song Reader. I you put this on his discography that you put on the agenda and I have no idea what it is. So the song reader was something that Beck wrote and released in 2012 and instead of writing a bunch of songs and releasing an album, he released a book of charts and specifically huh. requested that anyone and everyone who wanted to take this public domain list of songs that he had written and interpret them on their own. So, but he didn't release like loops. He li- literally just released charts, like like released the music for the songs. Okay, and all over the country, maybe the world, bands took this sheet music and s- said, "I don't know what this song actually sounds like if it had been recorded." So we're going to play it. And there were these concerts all over the place that people just called the song reader. And then I, this completely passed me by. It 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 was amazing. It was like creating an album over and over again that was just slightly different. And then just to prove his point, in 2014, the Song Reader album came out, which does feature one song performed by Beck, but also features Fun, Jeff Tweedy, Nora Jones, Lord Huron, Jack White, uh, Laura Marling, Jason Isbell, Mark Rabot. Eleanor Friedberger, nice. Jack Black, Loudon Wainwright III, just to name a few. Okay. All basically paying tribute to this genius idea that Beck that had. That is a really good idea. And and they they all sound like 
completely different songs that are almost unrelated to each other because rather than going, here's me covering a Beck song, it's right, exactly. here's me reading music and me interpreting what I would think it would sound like. Yeah, because I generally cannot get into a tribute album, but a tribute album like featuring all songs by the artist that you've never heard before that I could get behind. It's it's so unique in what it is yeah. that it's hard to call it a tribute album. Right. There was no tour behind it. It was just what it was and it it was eventually released on as an album. If you look up Song Reader on Spotify, you can listen to this, but okay. you can also go out and buy the book and teach yourself the songs. Okay. Um what this reminds me of is uh how much have you heard about uh about the the long twisted story behind the song Old Town Road? None. Okay. There's a fantastic, we'll link to it in the show notes. There's a fantastic episode of the podcast Switched on Pop, which I think I mentioned on every episode of this show, um, that really takes the question like, uh, where did the song Old Town Road come from and should it be on the country charts or not? But one thing, like my favorite part was that one of the core samples in the song Old Town Road by Little Nas X is from that, um, you know, when a few years ago, when uh, when Trent Reznor released a whole bunch of public domain loops, uh, one of those loops became uh, Old Town Road, but is also a loop that they use constantly as interstitial music on This American Life. You are shitting me. Oh, I'm not. And also, Little Nas X sounds like he mashed up uh, three different artists. Yeah, well, Little sure. Little Wayne, Nas, and DMX. Yeah, I mean, but there's a. There are other littles besides Wayne. There's other X's besides DMX, yeah. but X going to give it to there, you. There are there aren't any other Nas's that I know. Of no, he, okay. he's the only Nas who we will be covering eventually on Soon, the show. I think, yeah. Uh, and when you say covering, we're going to be doing a song for song cover. <laughs> we're we're going to play Illmatic. Start to finish, and it's going to be our own interpretation. It's going to be our of own it. interpretation of we, all the we've, songs. We've actually got a bunch of Seattle superstars to play uh, as the backing band on it. Oh, I'm sorry. This just in: none of them can make it. Oh shit! Uh, what was your next song? <laughs> oh, uh, my next song is High Five. High five. The deal with this song is, uh, I remember so vividly, and I had not thought about it until preparing for this episode, that one of the re- one of the things that uh, my neighbors were so excited about on this album was that this song had the coolest lyric, high five, more dead than alive, rocking the plastic like a man from the casket. I always heard it as a man full of caskets. I'm like, how does a man get full of caskets? <laughs> Slowly, I guess. <laughs> uh, and, and I realized, like, I remember turning over the record. I'm like, it says cat skills here. They're like, I know it says that, but clearly he's saying casket. He's not. But <laughs> he, he, he is saying rocking the plastic like a man from the cat skills, uh-huh. right? Which, I mean, like a man from the casket is a better lyric, I gotta say, but this is a pretty cool song. Uh, I have to add it in here, and we might cut it out, we might not, but I was just thinking this week about my, our other brother, Ben's uh, best misheard lyric of all time. Oh, I don't, oh, I don't know if it? you remember this. I don't think so. Uh, and I only want to cover this here, because I don't think we're ever going to do Sparkle and Fade by Everclear. Oh, I listened to that the other day. Oh, That's well, weird. We'll, yeah. we'll see. Uh, Santa Monica 
the first lyrics i am still living with your ghost lonely and dreaming of the west coast i don't want to be your downtime i don't want to be your stupid game mm-hmm. well apparently for years without telling anybody ben was hearing that second line as i don't want to be your downtime i don't want to be your stool pig yun. like stool pigeon only stool pig yun. So much better. I thought you were just gonna say I'm, I'm living with your goats. I'm like, yeah, I've heard that yeah, before. Yeah. No, no, okay. still <laughs> pigeon is amazing. And and I I learned this years ago, and, and still still to this day, every time I see a pigeon, I go, oh, that's a nice pigeon. <laughs> oh my god. Uh, I'm sure everybody has something like this, but yeah. stool pigeon is that's, like. But, but that's better than yours, whatever I, it is. I I just don't know how that makes sense, and I don't know how you'd hear it for years and just go, "Nope, that's lyric, not yeah. changing it." Uh huh. <laughs> that's all that I want to say about High Five. Yep, me too. <laughs> uh, the last track I picked was New Pollution. All right, let's do it. The, the chorus is the same as the verse. Totally. Uh, it, it's a hip-hop track. Yep. Can we skip ahead to the saxophone at the end of this? Oh, yeah, yeah. Let me see if I can nail it. Beautiful. I, I literally just like randomly clicked on the timeline there. It's because you're a fucking master. Yes. Uh, can you play the song Venus by Joe Thomas? Yeah. Just the first 10 seconds. Uh, I just want to say while we're pulling that up, she's got a cigarette on each arm. She's got the lily white cavity crazes. <laughs> she's got a carburetor tied to the moon. Pink eyes looking to the food of the ages. Mm-hmm. How, how do you do that? How do you do that? Like, how do you write stuff Practice, like that? Practice, I guess. <laughs> Practice it being totally nonsensical. What? Like... How many thousands of couplets, tens of thousands of couplets, has Beck discarded? I don't know. That That's what it feels like. Right. Is somebody would have to write pages upon pages of stuff that rhymes, but totally nonsensically, and go, there's a good little snippet that we'll pull out and throw into a song. Yeah. Because you're certainly not writing something going, I need this to tell a story. <laughs> right. Uh, okay, Venus. That's it. I just love going back to this album, thinking that it was just an album that he wrote yeah. and the Dust Brothers produced, and that it's really done like a hip-hop album. Yeah, very it, much so. It is taking samples that were found from obscure tracks from the 50s, 60s, 70s, and using them to create textures. Yeah. And it's it's one of the things I love most. Go ahead. Something important that has nothing to do with this song that I forgot to mention until just now. I don't think, well, actually, no. I don't remember if I ever knew but rediscovered that the thing on the front of this album is an actual dog. It is. I think I maybe learned this once before and it was so preposterous that I forgot again. It's called a Commodore and it's a real picture taken by Beck. Wow. Yeah. Where? 
Um, probably his backyard. I don't know. Maybe he was a big Commodore uh, fanatic and owned a couple of them. Okay, could be. Uh, it's it's a fluffy, very strange looking dog. You probably have to find special Commodore groomers who know how to do it right because everybody else would get it wrong. See, my guess was that this was like one like one photograph in a series of like artsy staged photos of like a guy who takes mops and other household implements and makes them look like. <laughs> Jumping dogs? No, in this case, it was just a dog that somebody probably used as a mop at some point. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> uh, so the reason that I love this track mm-hmm. so much is it's kind of timeless. It sounds like a disco yeah. hit. It's What's it's, going on at the beginning there? Um, I mean, it sounds like, you know, it's... it's uh, who's the Space Age Bachelor Pad music guy? It's kind of like that. Space Age Bachelor Pad... Actually, that's the title of a, uh, a Stereo Lab album, right? But but I'm thinking that's but I don't mean Stereo Lab. Um, I can only think of spiritualized again. Esquivel. No idea who that okay. is. Uh, but also sort sort of sounds like video game music. It's more samples. Yeah, and then it's another one of these songs where it's just got this driving bass line. The first uh, verse is basically just drums and a bass line. Yeah, and him singing over it. And then he just keeps dropping in more layers that feel mm-hmm. very Danger Mouse-esque, uh, but have this kind of James Brown thing going, this hip-hop thing going, this funk thing going. This song really stands out to me from seeing him when I was 17, uh-huh. because he was just moving it all over the stage like a sex machine. <laughs> And still to this day, I think it's one of the coolest songs ever written in terms of the vibe, in terms of the saxophone kicking in at the end. It's just a really, really great driving timeless song. Yeah, I agree. Um, it, uh, yeah, and it like it's not, it's 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 not a very like high tempo song, but it has a fantastic amount of energy. Yeah, it's it's uh, also got a bridge that's done on keys. Right. It's got chunky guitars on it. It's like he's doing a little bit of everything that he does on this album with this song, except for the acoustic thing. Right. Um, and certainly isn't trying to write poignant lyrics, as we covered, but it's it's it encapsulates everything about this album that I love. Okay, so let me let me ask you something. I think I sometimes have a like like I, I feel like the reason I never formed like a you know close intimate connection with this album which which is an album that that I enjoy listening to very much but never feel like oh you know this this really like speaks to me is because the lyrics are so goofy like is there a way to to kind of approach this album that where where I can like derive the 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 sort of emo meaning that I crave do you like sea change yeah that was so enthusiastic. I, I'm feeling it over here across the table. <laughs> no, no, no. I mean, I mean, uh, yes, I, I do. I can relate to like serious Beck songs that way, but that's not what this album is about at all. It's not. Um, I like tongue in cheek music. Yeah. I like things that are weird. I like unique music that you hear and you say, oh, I know who this is. And what you were saying about it harking back to Beefheart, to Zappa, yeah. he seems to be, at least lyrically, taking a lot of the the things that they were doing and putting them to a more modern type of, of form. Yeah. So is that going to make you like it more? Absolutely not. <laughs> um, no. And, is- and I, again, I want to be clear, I do not dislike anything about this album. It's just like some, you know... It, it's I. It's really like I. I. It, this album makes me realize like how much of an emo dork I am. My my real question when I hear it is not is there a way for you to get something out of it serious? <laughs> no, no. But, let's make this all about me. Uh, we always do. It, it, it's it's about time that we make it about someone else. <laughs> Look, I'm going to pull my guitar out again. <laughs> um, is Beck writing it in a way that he finds serious, or is he going, here's something really funny, here's something else we can do that's kind of hilarious? I don't know. I think, see, I think Devil's Haircut is kind kind of a real song about mental illness. It's not even kind of. That's not even fair. Like, you know, it is, the the fact that he's kind of dancing around the concept, you know, emphasizes what the song is about. Well, I, I read that, that, his father died in the middle of making this album 
and that that was part of what influenced him. And I don't really listen to this album and go, yeah. you can really feel the dead father aspect right. of this album. So I don't know where his writing comes from. He tends to throw a lot of really odd noises and different sounds into all of his music, and it makes it uniquely him. But I'm glad that you like it. If somebody came to me after this episode and said, you know, I just don't like that album, I would understand. For how big Where It's At felt at the time that it came mm-hmm. out, it's it was surprising to me that this album only sold two million copies. Um, yeah, but I mean, but it, it's undeniably fun. Like, it, there are a lot of fun albums that don't get nearly enough press yeah, or notoriety. Yeah, sure. um, no, no, I think I think in the same way that like comedy is death at the Oscars, like fun fun can be an obstacle to success. Right. And he's been lucky enough to maintain success for 27 years now, which is almost unheard of in this day and age. And he still tours and he still plays large venues. People are interested in him. And the most amazing part of it is he's one of those few performers that they're not interested as a nostalgia act. They're not sitting there and going, "Okay, get past the new stuff. Let's hear Loser and where it's at. Yeah, that's true. Uh, he's he's one of those rare people who will put out a new album. People will say, I love the new album. Let's hear some of the tracks from it. Yeah. Okay, so go listen to Colors. Yeah, it is it is a really, really great album. Uh, all right. So, hey, we... So this is uh, like our, our... The beginning of our second set of six albums that we're doing. This is season two. Season three, maybe. We'll say season one was the, the Laura Lowe era. Uh, season two was uh, the first six pack of jake and and we're bringing we're bringing jake back for a second six pack do you you know why we picked six albums at a time i I don't remember i have no fucking clue (laughs) (laughs) because because it's a it's a six pack okay perfect um do we do we want to talk about some of the other ones we're going to do in this six pack I'm sticking with this six-pack thing. Uh, that would involve me remembering what any of them are. I always have to go back and look at a list. Okay, so I know this was <laughs> this was one of them. <laughs> nice work. Way to go there, genius. I know, I know Illmatic was one of them because we said that 10 minutes ago. Pearl Jam versus. Pearl Jam versus. Uh, Tori Amos were kind of deciding between Under the Pink and Little Earthquakes. Yep, I'm fine with either one. Uh, Oasis, definitely, maybe. Um, yep. And one other. Yep, there's got to be another album there because there's six total. Yep, and uh, I mean we did pick one, but like if you want to weigh in at uh, Facebook.com/slash/HiddenJukebox and let us know what that six, how how we should round out that six pack, maybe we'll change it up. Please, please don't suggest Jewel or Third Eye Blind. They have been <laughs> suggested. I knew you were going to say that. I I am pondering them heavily, going back and listening to the albums. Okay, I haven't done that at all. What if we did one episode where we switched back and forth between, like, alternated between Jewel and Third Eye Blind songs? It's one of my favorite juxtapositions. Mm -hmm. (laughs) We'll we'll see if that can happen. All right. uh, So you can find us, uh, like I said, facebook.com slash hidden jukebox and hiddenjukebox.com. And uh, until next time, I'm Matthew Amster Burton. And I'm Jake Amster.